My name is Kevin Bates, and I'm a pastor in Sherwood, Oregon. Each and every week, we desire to take theological principles, biblical stories, and narratives, and all the genres of scripture, and help you immerse yourself in order to embody and apply all that we're talking about to your everyday life. I want to encourage you to tune into this online broadcast each and every week, and ways you can support this is first, follow our Instagram page, like our Facebook page, that's Resonate Church, and you can listen to this broadcast and make comments underneath whatever social media channel you desire to watch and listen to. You can find it financially support us through our website, uh, resonatelife.org, and on the website under the Give tab on the left-hand side. You are joining us live Thursday night at 8.30 p.m. for this broadcast, and this will be replayed as a part of our Sunday morning broadcast as well. So every Thursday night, we are coming together for this to give a live and better understanding of the material that we are covering. So call this a deeper dive. So if you've been following us online, you'll remember that we are in a series called The Atlas of the Heart. And today we're talking about the biblical view of emotions created through comparison, the places we go when we compare. I'm joined today with Sherea Bodner and Jacob Flug. These are two of my leaders at Resonate. Good evening, Jake and Sherea. How are you tonight? Good. Thank you. Hey. How are you? Awesome. I'm good. And I'm hoping to dig a little deeper into this, these emotions of comparison and where we go when we compare. So just as an intro to this subject, uh, I, I struggle with comparison. I do. I think everybody does to a degree. Uh, in Brene Brown's book, Atlas of the Heart, she opens up this chapter on comparison with a swim metaphor. And definitely I have lived that swim metaphor where the person next to me in the next hand lane usually is my friend Jake here that joins us. <laughs> uh, Jake many times, of course, he's 16 years younger than I am and I am almost 50 years old that I compare as he busts ahead of me or he's able to bust ahead of me in the swimming pool. Um, and does not, not happen very often. <laughs> and so we oftentimes, uh, oftentimes compare whatever our thing is. So we might have a hobby, we might have an athletic or a, or something that we do uh, to be physically active. We might be a cyclist, a runner, we might be a swimmer, we might be a badminton player, whatever we do, uh, if physically to get exercise, or we might be a knitter, we might be some other kind of craft hobbyist, we might be an artist, like a painter, photographer, or maybe even a musician. Maybe you play the piccolo, the clarinet, the trombone, the slide, or the valve trombone. Uh, maybe you play the upright tuba or the trumpet, or maybe the violin or cello. And there's always somebody going to be better, better than us at that one little thing that we want to get better at. And we want to be the best that we can be. And there's always somebody better. And so we compare ourselves to the, the famous person. We compare ourselves to the celebrity, 
the famous musician, the famous singer, whoever they are, we oftentimes compare ourselves. I know it happens a lot physically in the world of modeling and fashion, where that has created body image and uh, body comparison problems amongst all genders of people that that is across the human race that we compare ourselves physically, mentally, socially, economically, and we compare ourselves state to state as states compare to other states. Look at those that live in that state. They're a bunch of, and we have a lot of maybe even expletives dumpster fire dumpster fire of Oregon that we live in. And so we've heard those comparisons, uh, those people down in Georgia, uh, maybe the South still carries this comparison stigma, maybe, uh, Seattle and the drab rain of all those depressed people living up there, Portland's the, the same, the grunge crowd. We compare ourselves to city to city, state to state, but now I've seen on an international scale that there is a definite trend to compare ourselves nation to nation. At least we're not like them. Russia. And so we look at our comparison between our nation and other nations, always trying to make sure that we are seen as the best. And I think that's the human nature, nature of human nature is we want to at least be perceived as the very best. And we make sure in our comparison that we are seen possibly as that. So the emotions of comparison, the places we go when we compare are first, we compare, we go to our comparison emotion, but those are admiration, reverence. So we do have admiration uh, in comparison. We do have reverence in comparison. We do have envy in comparison. Envy is different than jealousy. We're going to unpack that tonight. What is the biblical view of envy? What is the biblical view of jealousy? What is the biblical view of resentment? There is a certain definition of resentment that's different than many of my people that I know, uh, what definition they use for resentment. I think both have a seeming validity to them, uh, yet I would... I think appreciate going forward a newer definition of resentment because resentment is different than anger. Schadenfreude is a German word that is exciting. We're going to unpack Schadenfreude compared to Friedenfreude. And these two terms, uh, Schadenfreude, the joy of somebody's having joy in somebody's failure and Friedenfreude is having joy in somebody's success. The joy in the joy and the joy in the pain, joy in the failure. So we're going to unpack those. But first, we are going to talk about one story. And this is our first story of Mary and Martha talking about admiration and envy and jealousy. And there's a lot of emotions going on here in this Luke passage. So let's read this first. And then we will unpack each one of those emotions tonight. While Jesus and his disciples were traveling, Jesus entered a village where a woman named Martha welcomed him as a guest. She had a sister named Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his message. By contrast, 
Martha was preoccupied with getting everything ready for their meal. So Martha came to him and said, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to prepare the table all by myself? Tell her to help me. The Lord answered, Martha, Martha, you are worried and distracted by many things. One thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the better part. It won't be taken away from her. So that probably drummed up some feelings, having Jesus saying that to you. You're, you know, the other person that for your entire life you've been comparing yourself to to, actually got affirmed by Jesus that, yeah, that other one, your sister there is definitely uh, the better part participating in the better part. I'm sure that brought up some feelings. So let's unpack the feelings of this. Let's unpack what this is. Uh, I have a, a certain interpretation of this scripture, which I believe is true and right and valid. And I think that uh, I think moving forward, I'm continuing with that interpretation. But what are the what's like the traditional interpretation of the story of Mary and Martha? Go for it, Shreya. Take this one. Uh, Martha was in the kitchen trying to prepare all the things for Jesus and his disciples. Mary wasn't helping like she was supposed to be. Martha got angry. And Jesus is like, no, it's fine. And so we are usually told that this means we're supposed to just be and just spend time with Jesus instead of worrying about doing all the things. All the things. Now, this is a danger in Christianity because I believe that in this idea of be Christian, don't do Christian, Uh there's articles and books written about this, that the Mary Martha comparison that uh, doing Christianity is not healthy. It's works-based, but being Christian. So I don't even know what being Christian is because when I'm being a Christian, I do things and being a Christian, I read things and pray things. And so I'm always doing things being a Christian. So I think that uh, the danger is just being kind of Buddhist in our, in our uh, Christianity where we're just, self-realize or self-actualizationists where we are just spending time with the Lord, trying to become at one with nothing or we're focused uh, on transcendence and not right. Mm -hmm. Right. And I think that's a danger in uh, there's no liminal experience with people. There's no liminal experience in the experience. And I, I think that to say that Mary wasn't doing anything, is also dangerous too, because she was actually threatening a system that mm-hmm. we see in this story that's quite profound. When we talk about comparison and uh, how we compare, I think it threatens several things. One, it threatens, as we talked about a little bit, our self-concept and our self-image, uh, but also our feeling of well-being. And our actual wellness or our mental health. And it definitely, in comparison, threatens our, our mental health. So to show admiration in comparison actually is a sense of, of emotional well-being. That when we can show admiration that shows something about what's going on inside of me in my comparison. So comparison is normal, 
and admiration is normal. Uh, is there any examples that you can give me, both of you, of true, pure uh, admiration? Like, is there anything that you guys can think of? I've been thinking about this really all day and all week. Biblical like, stories? Is... No, not necessarily. Oh, okay. Yeah. Like any, any person that you truly, purely admire or that you've seen somebody else admire? It's a hard one, especially like uh, admiration does not come with the aspect of trying to be like them is one thing that, that Brittany Brown brings up is that it's it's more about just action and um, a person that is being well admired right now is um, Zelensky. Right. right? Mm -hmm. I think of people that are admired in the world right now, I think he probably, he is probably number one because he's standing up against the giant. You know, we love the underdog stories. We love the David and Goliath stories and this right. is a real life one happening right in front of us sure and it's like the hero's uh, journey right in front of us it's the hero's journey right in front of us and he is a actor and comedian and so um i don't know if he knows it well if he may but he is he is playing the part perfectly well he probably is i mean he probably is living very real life right now and totally. like pleading with the international world right now in different aspects, but because he's a trained actor and comedian, he can like communicate he can, well. He can, yeah, he can communicate mm -hmm. and articulate himself in a way that is engaging to yeah. people. Yeah. I was not saying that his lived experience was anything worse than hell right now, but the, what he's able to communicate is so much greater. Yeah. Well, and to be, mm -hmm. You know, his to be very careful with what I say. He's the president, he's in a bunker, and most of his like it seems like what I'm seeing, some of it his of his stuff is out there, like on the field, and a lot of it is you know engaged, you know, in that bunker, and he's doing like diplomatically, he, he has to he has to be protected, yeah. But what he's doing really well that I like as you bring him up is he's relaying the heart of the people, mm -hmm. even though he might not necessarily be right there on the front line with a, you know, like yeah. arm armed and, and shooting himself, uh, which it sounds like he would and probably has, uh, but he's relaying that heart to the world really well, like the yeah. heart of what's going on on the field, even though he's a protected president right now. Mm-hmm. Like if I, that's, that's who I think of number one. And like, yeah, he brings up stories of like Winston Churchill for me, where Winston Churchill would, would walk the streets of London while they were being bombed. Mm -hmm. um, I think right. some other admired people more in a peaceful way. Um, well, Sheree, why don't you jump in there? What are some other, give us some admired people that you... Uh, Desmond Tutu is the first person I thought of. Oh, yeah. 
I think of Desmond Tutu and his ideas of forgiving. Yeah. And how forgiveness is more about you than the person you're actually forgiving. Mm-hmm. No, it's profound. Yeah, that's great. Anybody else for you? Uh, Madeline Langle. Okay. Is, was yeah. a person that I admire. Tell me about her. Uh, she wrote uh, Wrinkle in Time, the Wrinkle yes. in Time series, as well as um, like she's got some great books based off her journals, just reflections on life and living as a Christian and also a normal person. Right. Right. Jake, did you have one more? Um, I'm not sure I could answer that question right off for me, but like Malala is a very mm-hmm. admired person right now. Mm-hmm. And so I'm trying to think more peaceful people than wartime heroes. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Well, I mean, war, war heroes, you know, we grew up watching war stories and war yeah. type documentaries and, you know, the, the good against evil, even our superheroes, that is a lot of war type story. So it's, it's easy to identify with war heroes. For me, it's, um, for me, it's Gandhi. And the reason why I admire Gandhi is his purposeful actions of humility, like even taking the lowest of status uh, purposefully and still like being a profound speaker and influencer. But really out of all the people that I think perceive played a Jesus role on earth, now, I'm not saying that Gandhi is Jesus, and I'm not saying that Gandhi even believed that Jesus was God. I'm not saying any of that. What I'm saying is, from my perspective, somebody that took on the heart and the Christ-likeness of Jesus would be Gandhi for me. Yeah. So. Gandhi's famous for saying, mm-hmm. I, like, I like your Christ, but not your Christians. Right. Yeah. I, can't, I can't identify that with that. <laughs> Me <laughs> too. <well>. Yeah. <laughs> right. I think the sympath the sympathizing, empathizing with the untouchable class. Yeah. Um shows me that's what's showing me the correlation between you know his lifestyle and philosophy of life and what Jesus, the gospel is all about. And so Mm -hmm. identifying and helping and partnering with like those that are rejected and not accepted, you know, that, that idea um, is, is quite good, quite profound. Yep. Okay. That's admiration. So the next one would be reverence and reverence is one of those terms that I think we most often use in religious circles because really, honestly, the reverence is not a term we, you know, I don't revere. I don't say that very often. 
I don't have reverence. Uh, you know, I have reverence, but I don't have reverence in my language. That word is not used yeah. in my language. And so adoration, worship, veneration, um, iconicizing, uh, looking at something as a respect, but there's something in the Bible called the fear of the Lord. So Jake, you're going to unpack that for us. And so what does that, when somebody reads, have fear of the Lord, they're like reading through the old Testament and someone had fear of the Lord. What does that actually mean? I think it's synonymous with reverence and to fear is to, to stop and the human, the human condition is to fight or flight. Right. And so when we have, when we have fear of the Lord, we stop and we, we fight with that emotion, that feeling, that sensation. And in Genesis, it talks about uh, Jacob wrestling with God all night. And God finally gets tired of it, touches Jacob's hip and forevermore. He walks with a walks with a limp because um, he didn't fear the Lord enough. Yeah. There's no reverence awe. So it's just a it's a healthy understanding of that that's outside of us. Um, we'll talk about things. Um, there's one section of this book about when things are outside of us. I think or something mm-hmm. where where awe becomes beyond, mm-hmm. when things are beyond beyond, beyond. yeah, and it's it's the awe inspiring. It's the, I'm going to, to stop because something is beyond me at this moment. Yeah. And still it's not the, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, unfortunately we can't find a different word than fear to translate that too. Cause fear in our modern language has such negative connotation. I, I think our modern translations don't use fear. Um, I'd have to look it up, but I would, mo- yeah. well, modern in the last, you know, hundred years, modern. I, I'm saying like last like 10 years. Yeah. Um, probably don't have, have fear written down, but it still is a, is almost a shame based system that they're working with. And that's why they use fear because, right. But fear is a primary, very human emotion. Well, to have reverence, you're seeing that thing transcendent Mm -hmm. so if something is transcendent that means it has power over you so the power over you sit in shame with power over that's how that's what shame like we talked about already is that shame is caused by those that have power over and speaking Mm -hmm. down doing down and the the idea is the transcendence of god is mm -hmm. something to shake yeah. Over. In the, in the yeah. book, uh, Brian Brown talks about how to figure out what your shame triggers are. Yeah. And it's the quote that you ask yourself is I never want to be seen as blank. Right. And just to keep answering your that question. And so Mary in the traditional uh, reading of that passage, are we, are we going to get to the alternate interpretation of the end? Kevin. I'm sorry. Go ahead. What did you say? Are we going to get to the alternate interpretation of that scripture or are we going to 
Oh, I guess we end. I guess we never went to the we alternate. Never, we never went back. <laughs> we never went back. But well, Mary, yeah, I'll just go for it right now, just quickly. Mary and Martha. Mary was actually sitting in the man area, the male area of the house. So the houses in uh, tradition, in Jewish tradition, were split up into you had female sections and male sections. So the males would sit in one section and the females would sit in another section. So Jesus, the rabbi sitting in the male section of the house, Mary was actually sitting in that section. So that Mary Martha story is actually a, it's a, a firecracker of a story, like a, like a table turner of the system where the system is upside down in the story. Any good Jewish person would have read that and went, why is Mary in that section of the house? And so she actually was doing more than Martha. And so that upside down thinking she's actually doing Jesus saying she's doing what I want her to do. And that could be seen as she's sitting with Jesus showing the world that women are equal showing the world that uh, they're, you know, like the, the, the marginalized are deserved, deserved of being in the presence of Christ too. It was a sociopolitical critique, not a yeah. critique of, of woman, women's uh, duties or laziness. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it's not a comparison of Mary doing the dishes and or Martha doing the dishes and Mary just sitting the there eat, eating biscuits with Jesus in the front room. I mean, that's just like that's just really low, low hanging fruit. Low. <laughs> that's a low interpretation for me. Well, let's go back to reverence. I'm sorry. Yeah, we have irreverence. <laughs> so okay, so now we could say that Martha was probably upset that Mary was being quote irreverent uh irreverent yeah. to the male the system. centric system yeah mm-hmm. yeah yeah how are we irreverent how can we actually be irreverent i feel like when the things that should make us pause don't yeah like what but- um, I think about Rob Bell's work, Drop Like Stars, mm-hmm. and Living in Wonder, I think is, is how I would describe reverent versus irreverent, that when we, when we don't stop to really think about our place in, in creation and the universe and how small we really are, um, if we, if we, if we flub everything, we look on our phones and try to snub all facts, right? Right. If we, if we take the joy out of conversations because we're doing more fact checking than just like being relational with old people. Right. That's when we become irreverent. I think what we talked about, Trey, did you have a little bit to add to that? Cause you almost jumped in. Uh, I was thinking about, um, so I've gotten to travel uh, with uh, former students um, 
And sometimes you've really got to prep the kids before you're going into a particular site. You know, you can't be running around and pushing each other and yelling when we're in the middle of the cathedral. The Vatican. Notre the Vatican. Dame. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. The, so, so kind of similar, like that lack of awareness <laughs> of the setting that you're in and what behavior is appropriate and, and having a certain level of, what's the word, like gravitas. Yeah, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. exactly. Yeah. I, going into, been to Southeast Asia a lot and, and in Southeast Asia, you have to, all people have to wear like either dresses or pants going into temples. You can't mm, have, mm-hmm. oh, and covered shirts. Like you have to have at least shoulders, shoulders covered, shoulders yeah. covered type no shirt. Yeah. yeah. So you can't like wear a tank top and shorts. Well, if you know what it, the weather's like there yeah, uh, in Southeast Asia, it's definitely tank tops and shorts during certain periods. All the of, time. Uh, all the time. All the time. <laughs> Most of the time it feels <laughs> that way. Um, unless you lived there and you got used to it, of course, but yeah, going into temples and important palaces, governmental palaces and stuff, you got to wear the right clothes. Otherwise, you know, get out type of thing, or they loan you, they actually loan you clothes at the front, which is really interesting. Mm -hmm. They'll, They'll give you a sarong and a wrap to put around you. Um, Will Sargent was, uh, was trying to pick a time to say that uh, Martha was in the or Mary was in the wrong section of the house. I think right when he hit send, you uh, you explain oh, the comment. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Totally. Good job, Will. That's a, that's good stuff right there. Beat us to the punchline. Beat us to the punchline. Right. Well, I think that there's two ways that we really show irreverence right now in the Christian world. And I've thought about this a lot prepping for this talk, but also Sunday morning is first taking the Lord's name in vain in the truest sense of taking the Lord's name in vain. And we show a lot of irreverence when we take the Lord's name in vain. Now I'm not a proponent of, you know, every time you hit your hand with a hammer to, you know, yell out Jesus's name, Um, especially his middle name especially his middle name with it, or, you know, putting God's name with a damn it. I'm not, I'm not for that. And I'm not promoting that at all. I think that that's not just healthy speak yet. That is a very low view of taking the Lord's name in vain. It's really not the intention of that scripture. Taking the Lord's name in vain and how we show irreverence is when we gain politically uh, economically or socially off of the Lord's name. So if we are connecting our life to the Lord's name, like if I was running for political office and I said, there's, there's a campaign slogan on the side of a person's van that says Jesus guns and babies. And what that means is that this person is for Jesus getting that crowd they're for Second Amendment, getting that crowd, and they're pro-life, getting that crowd. So they're using campaign names and slogans triggers. to triggers to try to get people to vote for them in a political campaign. 
I don't think there's anything wrong with saying, hey, I'm a Christian and I have faith in Christ. Yet using that for political gain in a campaign slogan, I believe that is the one of the senses of taking the Lord's name in vain. Or I, I'm starting to more and more venture into, I'm thankful that when we started Symposium Coffee, that we didn't start it as a Christian coffee shop, that you know Jesus was like in our name because it's so economic. Hebrews. Yeah. It's Holy so, grounds. It's so, it's so economically driven and it's so culturally driven that to connect so closely Jesus name, you would be making money off of that slogan or off of that reputation. And I'm just not really interested in becoming more economically viable or politically viable or socially viable, becoming popular because I carry the name of, of Jesus. So that those are the ideas of taking the Lord's name in vain. I think the biggest example I have recently of taking the Lord's name in vain is there is a shop owner in Sherwood and she is not a Christian. She would tell you that flat out. We have a wonderful relationship with her. She's a wonderful person. Uh, just not a Christian. And when she put up a vaccine mandate to come into her establishment, um, she was just ripped apart on social media. And if you followed out any of those accounts and went to their and went to their profiles under their description of who they are, Jesus, God, the church was always mm-hmm. listed in that. So their so faith is, or their Jesus was connected very closely to a into an attack, po- a, an attack or a politicized idea. Yeah, yeah. And so like, yeah, we had a uh, we had a, a BLM sign in our in our front window in Tigard, and we get a complaint email about it from a pastor that in a local church that used his used his uh, his church email to send that to me instead of just some random email. Right. There's lots of different examples right now in the last handful of years of using the Lord's name in vain. And I just think that those are examples, whether we agree with them or not agree with them, we might be, Hey, I'm all for that, or I'm all against that or whatever it is. We just need to be very careful in how we connect the Lord's name to our agendas, political ideals, our political advancement, especially like if you're just a, you know, regular person, just here and working a job um, that you're not advancing yourself economically wealth wise off of the Lord's name. But also there's another one is that's what we talked about last week is part of our irreverence is certainty, having our faith Mm. in the bag, putting it in a box and saying, Hey, my faith fits in this little tight circle. I'm done. Um, Yeah. Give me those five points and I'm good. You know, uh, Give me those propositions. Give me that list of 10 things and, you know, I'm in. So that idea of certainty and living in so much certainty and not allowing God to be God and grace to be grace and the gospel to actually be for people, all people, um, I think we run the risk of being irreverent. Yeah. So those yeah. are two two different ideas that uh, that I think are 
our reverence. What's What's funny, Kevin, is we have a list of seven things, and you were worried that we were going to do the first five so fast. Yeah, so I think I think we may have to figure out a different time to get to those last two. Well, it's only nine oh seven, so hey, we got we got lots of time. All right, Jake, take resentment. Oh, are we doing we sk- it? Oh, yeah. I'm we sorry. Jealousy. We no, jealousy. we can't skip jealousy. We got envy and jealousy, kind of closely related. You, that's the one I want you to take. Take jealousy and envy and run with it. Okay. Um, jealousy and, and and resentment. Did we already talk? About, we didn't talk. Oh, and we need to talk about envy at the same time, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Jealousy and envy. Jealousy yeah. and envy. Jealousy. And envy. Thank you. So um, when we say I'm so jealous of something, we're actually using that, that phrase wrong, that it really should be I'm so envious of that something. And so jealousy and envy are both relational type emotions where you have one, and it's usually you and another person. And then that's envy. It's you and one other person. So I'm envious of what that person has, be that um, wealth in their, what they have or what they are able to do, the amount of money they have, the items that they possess. Right. If it's, um, I forgot the other two. I don't have the book in front of me. So if someone wants to. Uh, that. Attraction. Attraction. Yeah. Or attraction. competence. Or competition, which is uh, more knowledge or what they what they know about yeah. things. Attraction, intellect, wealth. Yeah, I forget what attraction really means. Relationship, uh, romantic relationship, or uh, like physical, physical attractiveness. Physical attractiveness. Or... Yeah. Okay. So I guess that other person has that, and you want that, and you <laughs> want them to lose it so that you can pick it up. That's sometimes. The, some most. Uh, <laughs> the violent form envy usually comes with a form of, <laughs> of violence. Right. And jealousy is, is a three part relationship where it's you, another person and something or somebody else. And so it's usually in the, in the romantic uh, aspect right. where, where you are jealous over the time spent or the flirting or the eye contact or the movement towards another person that stands in the middle of you too. But it could even be this person over here is having alone time by themselves and you're jealous of the time that they're spending by themselves or a common one that I see pop up right now is that um, some people are resentful and, and jealous of time spent by their spouse, like exercising or um, getting healthier because it, it impacts their time that they're allowed to spend with second person. And so that's the, that's the jealousy trifecta. Um, jealousy though, can also be a good thing and that it would, it spawns attraction on both sides mm-hmm. and if someone wants to look the quote up for me, uh, Maya Angelou um, says that jealousy in romantic in, in, in romantics is a, go ahead and try a spark is like salt in food. Thank you. 
A little can enhance the savor, but too much can spoil the pleasure and under certain circumstances can be life threatening. <laughs> that's awesome. That is awesome. Uh, so that's my Angela's quote on, on jealousy. So jealousy is when we actually fear losing something. And we already have. Yeah, that we already have. Or had, yeah. Or had. And one of the ways that I've seen jealousy manifest itself in a very impactful uh, and really kind of toxic way is when somebody that has an addiction and you, you know, you've tried your best to figure out like, how to get this person healthy or keep the drugs and alcohol away from them or just live with it and put up with it or whatever, whatever the codependent or the enabling or whatever that's happened or the not enabling you've tried your best in this situation. And then all of a sudden this person just wakes up one day and they go, they go to, uh, or they have this rock bottom event, whatever that is. And, and, or they find some mentor in their life or somebody that speaks authoritatively and all this in the light bulb goes on. They say the exact same thing that you have for the last 15 years and they end up in a recovery group. And so they go to the recovery group and they start to get healthy and they come home with this new language one day at a time, you know, they, they like have these, you know, slogans and bumper stickers and they come home with the big bill book and they they're like now healthy and now oh. they're actually believing in a higher power and all this, you know, cool stuff. And, the hats. And, you're, and you got the hats and you got the shirts and you got the group and you can actually smoke the there and you can smoke there and drink coffee. And you have your community and all of a sudden you start to get healthy and all of a sudden now you get rewarded. Get coins. You get coins and you get accolades and all of that is really cool stuff. I think it's, it's great. Lovely. It's awesome. It works. It keep coming back. And so the problem is, is the spouse or the, or the partner that walked the 15 years, they don't get coins. They don't get a group. They don't get free coffee in the back. They can't smoke cigarettes with their friends out on the porch. They, they get nothing for their 15 years besides maybe in the, in the step where you have to make amends that that person comes back and somehow says that they're sorry for the last 15 years. So they get this whole new life and you're left with just really, okay, what did I get what to happen damage and so this person gets healthy and sometimes the jealousy of that that you have lost everything that you know you've lost it mm-hmm. what you've known is addiction and you've known this you know this person's going to come home and they're going to drink and that's just the way it's going to be or whatever it is and and this person actually sometimes can get super unhealthy. So then there's another group called Al-Anon for the people, the, the, the partners, the spouses, the significant others of the addict or the, or the abuser. So that's one example of how jealousy uh, can be, well, that can turn to life-threatening issues. I mean, that this person that this person gets healthy and recovers and now is, you know, 180 days sober and 
all this amazing stuff and this person actually commits suicide. So it's, uh, it's really kind of a toxic sometimes relationship there that they don't get coins. Which I think leads perfectly into your, into your next section. So resentment. I think that it's very easy in that relationship to have resentment, but resentment has more to do in the classic definition or a more reformed definition of resentment. We use resentment actually synonymous with anger or harbored anger. And, and so resentment actually has more to do with envy than anger. And so Cain and Abel, if you think about Cain and Abel and how uh, Cain killed Abel, where Abel had the better sacrifice and Cain brought his very best, the, the, the work First of his labor, sin. yeah, work of his labor, but Abel had the better sacrifice. So that's the, that's the best example that I found, uh, just a really clear example. Cain and Abel is the idea of resentment that Abel got the affirmation, Abel got the, the, Abel got the, the celebration of his offering the better sacrifice and Cain is like the workhorse. And he's just like, well, what about me? So that maybe is a form of, there was some jealousy going on there maybe initially, but then that turned into definitely an envy and a bitterness um, that we see take root. And that's where it turns into uh, life-threatening, not just, not just uh, getting unhealthy, but that turns into a life-threatening um, mm-hmm. action. So Cain kills Abel. I was just thinking about the older brother in the story of the prodigal oh, son. Yeah. Yep. Okay, yeah, let's right. let's let's move on to. Uh, can we move on because we got to get to the Schadenfreude and the Freudenfreude. So. Is there is there some people listening online? Yeah, you haven't liked. Okay, so uh, those of you who are listening online, just pop in there and tell me: Have you ever heard of the terms Schadenfreude and Freudenfreude? Hmm. It'd be interesting to take a poll of people uh, whether or not they've ever been introduced to these two terms. Uh, Schadenfreude and Freudenfreude are two German words. And these are emotions of the places that we go when we compare. And so schadenfreude is the German word split. Freude and schaden or schad means, schad means failure and freude means joy. We have joy in the failure. So when somebody fails, you're happy about it. I will be the first to admit in our little trio that I have experienced in my life plenty of schadenfreudes. Today. <laughs> oh, yeah. No. Somebody trips and Today? it's hilarious. <laughs> Somebody trips. Exactly. What do you think fail videos are all about, right? Fail army videos. So schadenfreude. Uh, well, Kelly has heard of schadenfreude. Good. So glad that Kelly has heard of schadenfreude. Freudenfreude. Freudenfreude means the joy of the success. 
And so when you have joy in somebody's success, uh, that is a different German word, Freudenfreude. So Schadenfreude compared to Freudenfreude. Well, I think, and I'm convinced that these are natural emotions, that when somebody fails, we have the sense of, finally, somebody just like me, right? We identify with it. We empathize with it. And so there's an, an actual elation sometimes when somebody doesn't work out. Uh, I would say I don't, I don't get joy off of somebody's continual misfortune. Um, if they are just, you know, down and out, it makes me happy about where I'm at. I don't, that's, that's a sense of evil that I don't like engage in really. But I would say that, I would say that I identify when somebody fails, there's an ident a strong identification with that because of my own failings in my life. So that's my sense of schadenfreude. I'm not, you know, clapping my hands and celebrating and, you know, having a beer over there. <laughs> hey, <laughs> over there, total failure. I wonder though. So, um, cheer, cheers. <laughs> if maybe it's connected to our desire for justice though, because like when I think somebody is a big jerk and then something happens to them, it's not necessarily that I want them to hurt or whatever, but it's like finally justice. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah, definitely. Vengeance oh yeah. When the, when the warlord loses the war. Yeah. When the underdog, when the underdog wins, you're wins. back to, back to Zelensky, right? The, I think um, I might get political for a moment. Uh <laughs> For a moment, <laughs> the I think the elation that some of us had that Disney found a weird clause. Oh, in, yeah, in their in their legal contract. Just the oh, that's nice, right? right. I think that's the is a part of Schadenfreude. Do you, like the person may have totally deserved it maybe like asking for it but we still have that emotion and so like uh, in the book Brian Brown talks about um, also political uh, COVID victims that made the declaration and the commitment to not wear masks and to not get vaccinated and was very outspoken with that so people that were really suffering with and so she had to check herself because like she was getting this schadenfreude of, well, you deserved it. I'm kind of, I'm kind of happy for that news cycle that you, you, you reaped what you sowed right. basically. But it's, it's very dehumanizing when we start to mm -hmm. engage in schadenfreude that these, these are people maybe misguided, mm -hmm. but they're still, they're still people. Yeah, it does cross the line of schadenfreude. I don't, I think it's an emotion and emotions are amoral. What we do with this emotion is whether okay. it's moral or immoral, how we respond, how we react to what's going on inside. So we have a sense of duty here of what do we do with the schadenfreude 
And honestly, I would say that that, that, that emotion needs to be a, 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 a silent emotion inside of me. Because if it comes out of me, that means that I'm, object, I'm objectifying a person. So I'm not looking at a person as a human being. I'm looking at them as an abstract object. No matter the case, even if it's my greatest enemy or the worst person on the planet, right? That I could say, this is the worst person on the planet. And all of a sudden they, you know, pestilence and disease and death and, you know, economic turmoil showers upon them. Uh, Jesus tells us to love our enemy. And so schadenfreude and my, even my feelings, I think that that is a moment that I can take inside of myself to say, okay, how do I love my neighbor? How do I even love my enemy? Even though I feel a sense of joy that they're losing ground because I, I don't want people to gain ground, certain people to gain ground in this world. I mean, there's, there's people that I think are very toxic in our world and I don't want them to gain ground. I don't want serial killers to be successful. And so when, when, when they get caught, I, you know, yeah, you, failed, you failed, you know, it's like, thank you for failing. Um, but I, I need to put that in check and say, okay, how can I love my neighbor? Um, and even love my enemy. So that's, that's my, my thought. I look at, I look at Psalm 137, where the Edomites are celebrating the Jewish demise and, or the, the Israelite demise and, and how, when they were the, they, they literally just collapsed, the Edomites celebrated. Um, well, that's the sense of schadenfreude. I mean, Israelites are not our enemies. We wanted, you know, they're the winners in the story. They're supposed to win. Uh, yet the Edomites thought that they, you know, won and they celebrated. So, so schadenfreude is actually the, the winner's emotion. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In all cases, right? Because there always has to be a loser when you win. Yeah. And so the next thought is I came across the line first. The next thought is I beat everyone behind me. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think uh, something interesting I'm thinking about is that comparison. This is all metered ideas. Like it's, um, we have an emotion based upon a, a, a physical um, aspect, basically, that can be that can be measured, that can be uh, discussed. Um, yeah. Shreya, give me an example of when you had fruit and Freuda. Um. Joy out of somebody's success. Yeah. Gosh, I'm trying to think of something recent. Um, if you can't think of something off the top of your head, 
Maybe no, that's time to great. do a little harder work. I'm, apparently. <laughs> I don't mean to put you on the spot. That was kind of mean. <laughs> uh, can I think of one that I've had joy about somebody's success? My daughter and her success in her track. Um, my wife taking a self-defense class here recently. I'm really thankful that she did and excited for her success in that. And she's learning to punch and kick. Please don't hurt me. Please don't hurt me. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. I think those are like two right now examples. Mm Mm-hmm. I think your sermon, Sheree, the other day, I was really proud of you for that, your success there. Thank you. Yeah. There is an article that I want to point everyone's attention to, and this is, I don't know if you, is that backwards? Nope. It's no. Right. You're good. Look at that. Can you read that, Sheree? A little closer. For A little everybody. closer. How about this? Right here. Up. Can you read? Up. There you go. No, down. Oh, yep. Right, right there. There. there it is. That's there it. Is. What is it called? I can't read it now. The role of Freudenfreude and Schadenfreude in depression. And what is the title of the, uh, the publication? The World Journal of Psychiatry and Mental Health Research. Okay, so if you just type that in, and I'm going to say it again, <laughs> maybe you can put it in the show notes there. World Journal of Psychiatry and Mental Health. It is the May 2018 edition. That's pre-COVID. Think about that. So May, 2018, I wonder if they have any, I wonder if they have any new studies after COVID with Schadenfreude and Freudenfreude. Uh, there are some great thoughts in here in this editorial, the, the role of Freudenfreude, Freudenfreude, Schadenfreude, I lost the, I lost the uh, pronunciation of that there for a minute. The role of Freudenfreude and Schadenfreude in depression and how these two play together in our depression or anxieties that we have um, in life based on this idea of, of, uh, of comparison, um, looking at somebody's success, whether we have joy over success or joy over failure. Two thoughts that they, uh, that they explicate out for us in the end is how do we love our neighbor with this? They didn't write it like that, but I'm going to say it like that is first to have shoy, what they call shoy. And shoy is intentionally sharing the joy of someone relating a success story by showing interest and asking follow-up questions. So to have shoy is to show interest and to have follow-up questions. And then number two is to have braggitude. And I really like that term, braggitude. First to have shoy and then to have braggitude, intentionally tying words of gratitude towards the listener following discussion of personal success. So showing words of gratitude tying words of gratitude towards the listener following discussion of personal success. My stepdad does this for me really well. Greg, he shows braggitude a lot. Mm. And I, I find that really interesting. It's one of his gifts that he has the ability to look at you and say, thank you so much for sharing that with me. That means 
a ton to me that you would share your life that way with me. Or I'm really proud of you for this, that, or the other. I'm really thankful that you actually accomplished that. The first time I rode my motorcycle, it was a terrible experience. I get on my motorcycle. He's watching me do this. And he looked at me up there he's like, I know you're going to be a great motorcycle rider because, because you have the skill already to, you know, offensively and defensively ride your motorcycle on the road. And he just found something to say, even in my failure, you know, he was finding a little bit of bragitude. Uh, I just found that um, quite awesome. Hey, we have to go here pretty soon, but I just wanted to cover this one thing. One of the things in schadenfreude that is underpinning, but also in Freudenfreude is the concept of envy, that envy is a driver of really joy and bragitude as well. Even though we have envy, we can show, show joy and have bragitude mm-hmm. as this role of, of, uh, in the journal of psychiatry tells us, but envy, the opposite of envy. So we discussed this in our pre-work, the seven deadly sins. Envy is one of the seven deadly sins, right? So the movie seven, you know, with Brad Pitt, it was a great movie. But what's in the box? What's in the box? Um, the movie seven walked through in a very graphic and it's, gruesome way. It's, so it's his wife's head. I'm not, sorry, not safe yeah. for children, but, uh, but yeah, rated three R's and with violence and gore and all that kind of stuff. So you have lust, gluttony, greed, slothfulness, wrath, envy, and pride. So those are the seven deadly sins. And then I asked in the pre-work, where did the seven deadly sins come from? I, I preached on this years ago, and I can't remember where they came from. It actually came from the early Desert Fathers. They just categorized sins in seven like big ones, like big emotions, right? So lust, gluttony, greed, slothfulness, wrath, envy, and pride. And then the counterpart, they actually were working off of a counterpart of the seven godly heavenly virtues. And so the opposite of love is chastity. The opposite of gluttony is temperance. The opposite of greed is charity. The opposite of slothfulness is diligence. The opposite of wrath is patience. I thought that was interesting. The opposite of pride is humility. And the opposite of envy is gratitude. Mm -hmm. Mm. Definitely. And so this week in our schadenfreude and frudenfreude, And all of our admiration and our reverence and our jealousy and our resentment and even our envy, could we show a little more joy and have a little more bragitude in life, right? Mm -hmm. Any concluding thoughts? Those are my concluding thoughts. That's that's spot on. The Mm -hmm. being, being thankful and having a practice of listing out the things that you're thankful for at the end of the day. Yeah, that's a good yeah. mindfulness can, practice. Yeah, can change everything about you. Yeah, it's huge. So close with this, Sheree. Do you have any closing thoughts? Sorry, not really. 
Okay. I think we said a lot. Just remember that comparison is actually necessary. It's a necessary action for your future, your future growth, uh, and it's how your future is shaped. You compare and it shapes your future. That is how we progress as a people, where we look at others, we look at somebody else's progress, we look at what others did and how they do it. It's what mentorship sometimes is about. Discipleship is the same concept too, where we follow the rabbi, we compare ourselves to Christ in Christ likeness. So comparison actually is and can be a very healthy, progressive type of action. But the places that we go definitely are those big, big emotions, but they're amoral. What we do with those emotions, we have shoy, bragitude, or we have hate, resentment, and, and anger expressed in, in violence and, and abuse uh, that can be moral or immoral. And we have to have careful obedience in how our big emotions are expressed because we can have big, big actions and big mm -hmm. results that are positive or big consequences that are, that are negative. All right. Good night, everybody. Thanks for joining us. And we will be back, back next week with Atlas of the Heart. Places we go when we experience such things like comparison. Take care.